Well, why don't we find our place together in 1 Corinthians um, chapter number 9. I'm going to need some help from you four kiddos here in a moment, okay? Olsons and Collins, if I could get your help in just a moment, I'll call you up, okay? It's been a minute since we've been in 1 Corinthians, but we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 9, the last part of 1 Corinthians 9, and uh, continue our study in 1 Corinthians called The Wisdom of Christ. This may uh, be news to you, but on December 15th, our country uh, passed the 232nd year of the Bill of Rights being added to our Constitution, okay? You know what the Bill of Rights are, right? It's the first 10 amendments to the Constitution. They're, they're some of the most important, right? Right to free speech, uh, the re- freedom of religion. I think we're all grateful for that one. The right to bear arms, uh, protection against unreasonable searches, the right to a fair trial. Um, and then maybe one of the more important ones, I think is Amendment 9 or 10, is that it basically says if it's not lined out in the Constitution, it passes down to the states, which is a very important amendment. And frankly, I think we'd all agree that without that Bill of Rights that has been sharpened over the years and even attacked over the years, our country would be a very different place, wouldn't it? It would be a very different place. Uh, In fact, I mean, even the last year or two, there are cases constantly that are coming up against those amendments that are having, uh, we're having to interpret, or judges are having to interpret in light of those amendments some very crucial things that affect us all the way down on the ground level in Garden City and Finney County. And that's why I think rightfully, as Americans, we all celebrate those rights, don't we? Every 4th of July or things like that, we celebrate the freedoms that we have in America. We appreciate them. And by golly, if they're challenged, we fight for them. Because those are crucial rights. There's something beautiful about them. But what we need to wrap our heads around as Christians, that it's okay for us to be passionate about our rights as Americans, but the gospel calls us to something that in our Western mindsets is very radical. The gospel calls us essentially to give up our rights. Not when it comes to our country's legislation and things like that, but in other probably more personal areas because as Christians, we worship and we serve a crucified savior who gave his entire self up and therefore Paul has been making the case in 1 Corinthians that because Jesus gave himself up, We too as Christians have to give up our rights, our preferences to serve other people. Now just to do a little bit of review, and that's why I need the kiddos to come up here. Um, In chapter number eight, we start a new section in 1 Corinthians, okay? And these four cute kids represent the Corinthian church, a bunch of knuckleheads, that's what they are, right? And so we got our Corinthian church over here, but unfortunately, the Corinthian church, as we saw in many sections, was kind of divided. But one of the main divisions that Paul is addressing is meat offered to idols. So we have half of our Corinthian church, these two young ladies, why don't you stand over here? Half of our Corinthian church, they do not think that we should eat meat offered to idols. So shake your hands like this, no meat, no meat. They thought it was wrong. Because eating meat offered to idols in their minds, maybe because of their Jewish background, do they look 
Okay, I'm just kidding. Because their Jewish background, they thought that eating meat offered to idols was essentially equal to worshiping an idol. So they said, we should not eat meat offered to idols. Whether it's in the temple, whether you buy it on discount, like used Halloween candy in the marketplace, doesn't matter. Eating meat offered to idols is bad, right? No meat, no meat. But then we've got the people in the Corinthian church that these people thought were liberal. These people, they freely ate meat offered to idols. So that's when we say, yeah, meat. Shake your heads, yeah, meat. And we got this group over here, and they were contending for the fact that they had the freedom in Christ to eat meat offered to idols. They would say things like this. Eating meat off to idols is not the same as worshiping an idol. Now, sometimes what we discovered is that these folks, in eating their meat off to the idols, they would actually go to an idol temple. What we discovered a couple weeks ago in studying 1 Corinthians 8 is that the idol temples of their day were like how we use restaurants today. There were not generally neutral religious locations that you ate meat at. If you're going to go to a kid's birthday party or some equivalent social celebration, you are going to that event at an idol temple. They didn't have event centers. They didn't really have a lot of restaurants. If you were eating meat, you were generally eating it in the temple of an idol. And so these brothers and sisters found themselves in those idol temples eating meat, and this had split the church. There was a big heated argument about this. This group would point their fingers at them, put your fingers at them and say, no meat. They'd say, you're a bunch of liberals. You're indulging in freedoms that God has not given you, and yet they would say, we are free in the gospel. Thank you, kiddos. So that's the situation that the church of Corinth was at. And we saw in 1 Corinthians chapter number 8, that Paul calls those who have freedom to serve the weaker brother. Because in this particular situation, the concern that Paul had is that they, by their freedom, he says, you're not doing anything morally wrong by eating meat off to idols, but this weaker brother could see you eating meat and thereby go back into a lifestyle of idolatry and thus be destroyed. I think is the word that is used at the end of 1 Corinthians 8. And then he calls the people over uh, here who were more, or sorry, over here that were more conservative about me. He lays the foundation using Deuteronomy 6 and the Shema to show them that eating meat offered to idols is not the same as worshiping an idol. And it's essentially saying this, that in this area, eating meat offered to idols, you have no right to condemn these brothers and sisters simply for their eating meat offered to idols. Now, let's be real. I don't think any of you came in here worried about what the Bible says about eating meat offered to idols, right? We don't deal with that. But we did discuss in that message on 1 Corinthians 8 that you can go listen to on our podcast or our website if you weren't here, that there are other areas where the Bible seems unclear that Christians can have disagreements over. And there's a lot of those. Now, I don't think all of those are at play in this passage because Paul's dealing with a particular issue that he's concerned if the more um, conservative group goes off into this area of eating meat off to idols, that they would thus forsake Christ entirely. 
So it's a little different than what type of music you've got on the radio in your car, though that, I would say, is one of these debated areas in Christianity. This is some serious stuff, stuff that would lead to someone being disqualified, being an apostate, really is the term that is used at the end of 1 Corinthians 8. These are serious issues, and he's concerned that by indulging in our liberties in Christ— unintentionally, though we may not forsake Christ and indulge in those liberties, a weaker brother could see us and thus trail off into that liberty, but also trail off into forsaking Christ. Now then, all of a sudden in chapter nine, it's as if Paul takes a left turn. He starts talking about what the Bible says about paying pastors. Now, I don't know about you, when I first read 1 Corinthians 3, as I was preparing for this months ago, I thought, why on earth is he going from meat offered to idols to paying pastors? Not in the same, you know, ballpark of issues. But what we find out as we come to our text this evening is that Paul is talking about the biblical right to pastoral compensation to give the Corinthians from his own life an example of denying something he had a right to for the sake of serving those who are weak. And what we're gonna learn tonight is not just about denying pastoral pay, because that doesn't really apply to hardly any of us in here. What we're gonna learn tonight is more important. Because as a Christian, your life is a life of self-denial. Jesus said, if any man will follow me, what does he say? Let him take up his cross and follow me. That the Christian life is a life of self-denial. And you may be like some of the Corinthians are, as they're hearing Paul's ex exposition on this topic saying, Paul, why do I have to give up my personal preferences, my personal beliefs to serve these people? Or maybe for you, it's why does the Bible call me to not do this sin? Why does the Bible say, I can't do this? It feels like when I read the Bible, it's don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. And I think this passage has some application for you. Because if you've ever wondered why a Christian should live a life of self-denial in gray areas or in areas that are black and white, Paul's words are going to give us two compelling reasons that we should live a life of self-denial. So let's find our place in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 15, and let's study together God's word tonight. <clears throat> Again, this is following his discussion that those who preach the gospel should live the gospel, verse 14, but verse 15 starts this way. I have used none of these things, neither have I written these things that it should be so done unto me, for it were better for me to die than that any man should make my glorying void. For though I preach the gospel, I have nothing to glory of. For necessity is laid upon me. Yea, woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel. For if I do this thing willingly, I have a reward." But if against my will, a dispensation of the gospel is committed unto me, what is my reward then? Verily that when I preach the gospel, I may make the gospel of Christ without charge that I abuse not my power in the gospel. Now this flows right into verses 19 through 27. For though I be free from all men, yet have I made myself servant unto all 
that I might gain the more. And unto the Jews I became as a Jew that I might gain the Jews. To them that are under the law as under the law that I might gain them that are under the law. To them that are without the law as without the law being not without law to God, but under the law to Christ, that I might gain them that are without the law. Are you following his logic? To the weak became I as weak, that I might gain the weak. I am made all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. And this I do for the gospel's sake, that I might be partaker thereof with you. Know you not that they which run in a race run all but one receiveth the prize? So run that ye may obtain. And every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. I therefore so run, not as uncertainly, so fight I, not as one that beateth the air, but I keep under my body and bring it into subjection lest that by any means, when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. What we see is in verses 15 through 18, Paul gives us his example of giving up his rights in the scripture to serve others, right? He laid a whole foundation for 14 verses that from the Old Testament, from logic itself and from the commands of Christ that as an apostle, he deserved to be compensated. And yet what we discovered a couple weeks ago is that Paul did not receive compensation. And ironically, Paul's doing all this to selflessly serve the Corinthians, but they're all mumbling and complaining about it because they think, well, this guy doesn't let us support him financially. He must not be the real deal. And yet Paul is saying that the reason uh, that, that, that the Bible says that I should receive as an apostle compensation In fact, we know this, that not only did Paul believe the scripture taught that, we know from what I can tell that at every other ministry location, Paul was supported financially. It was only in Corinth that it shows that he worked a job of making tents. And we'll talk about the reason for that here in a minute. But but Paul in verses 15 through 18 takes his argument in a whole different direction because he shows, yes, the scripture teaches all that, but yet me as a person, I have chosen to lay aside my rights to serve everyone, to serve others. Paul says in verses 16 through 17 that if he were to preach the gospel, preaching the gospel itself does not garner a reward. And I think, Christians, we all need to think about these verses. This is just a side note. But I want you to think about this, because sometimes as Christians, we think that it's super Christians that share the gospel, right? We think it's people that like, wow, if they're out evangelizing, if they're sharing the gospel with people, if they're they're talking to a lost person about Christ, they must be that next tier of Christian. We all aspire to be that. I know in my life, um, I want to be better at sharing the gospel, I want, to be, I want to be more active about that. I've never been in a place in my life where I thought, you know what, I share the gospel enough. But what Paul says, and this should convict us, and we know Paul, right? This dude gave his life sharing the gospel. He went all over his world sharing the gospel. And yet he says in verses 16 through 17 that he doesn't receive a reward for that. He says it's no big deal. 
I'm not anything special simply because I preach the gospel. And you and I, what we need to recognize is that sharing the gospel is not special service to Christ. It's normal service to Christ. That's normal. We don't pat ourselves on the back a little bit extra because we happen to share the gospel message. No, that's what Christ expects. So much so that Paul says, I don't even get a reward for preaching the gospel. But he does say, That's the reason, one of the reasons that he personally gave up his right to compensation is because he did want to make the gospel free of charge. And as we'll see, he did this because of his understanding of Corinthian culture. He didn't want the lost people in Corinth thinking he was just doing this for the money. And so he turned all of his compensation away so that he could minister in Corinth freely. But I want you to look at verse number 18. He says in verse number 18, what is my reward then? That I, when I preach the gospel, I may make the gospel of Christ without charge. And here's the key word, that I abuse not my power in the gospel. What's really important for us to understand the point Paul is making is that that word power in verse number 18 is the same word that in 1 Corinthians 8, 9 was the centerpiece of our discussion that is translated liberty. Right? When we had the two groups in Corinth, what was their debate about? It was a debate about liberties. It was a debate about what's okay. What do we have power to do in the gospel? And here's what Paul is saying. He's saying that I'm giving up my liberty, my power to receive compensation so that I can serve other people. Here's what Paul's doing. He's saying, Corinthians, I'm not preaching something to you that I have not lived. I'm not telling you to deny self and as an apostle, not living an example of denying self. Now, the real question is, we have to ask Paul, why? I mean, that's kind of a big sacrifice, isn't it? For this man to not receive ministerial support, to set aside many hours that he could have been giving to the church at Corinth to make tents. And it's a bigger question for us that we may ask in other areas because I don't think any of us are concerned about our own ministerial compensation, right? But we do ask questions like, why does God ask me to fill in the blank? I love that uh, a few weeks ago, I got a question about the, the message in 1 Corinthians 8 that, that really helped me understand that we're kind of driving at the point Paul was getting at because someone voiced this, and I, I love this question. They thought, man, when is enough enough of me giving up my rights to serve my fellow brother and sister? And if that's the feeling we're getting when we're studying 1 Corinthians 8 and 9, we're really close to what Paul wants. Because if we're gonna really think about this passage and embody this passage, there's gonna come a time where it seems like Christ is asking you to give up so much, it's unfair. Have you ever felt that way? You're asking me to do too much. It's already enough, Jesus, that you want me to give up this sin and give up that lifestyle and give up this thing and give up that thing. But now you're telling me that not only do I have to give up the black and white moral stuff, I need to give up my gray area liberties to serve this weaker brother? to make sure they don't go off into a lifestyle of idolatry or drunkenness or other types of sin like we talked about a couple weeks ago, that seems unfair. Why is the question we ask? And so Paul, what he does in this passage, he gives us two reasons why self-denial is essential in the life of a Christian. Two reasons. Here's the first one. We need to exercise self-denial 
to minister more broadly. Paul shows us that by his own example, the, one of the main core reasons that he would deny his right to compensation was so that he could minister more broadly. And that's why you and I need to consider a life of self-denial as a Christian. And I'll be honest, probably for the people in this room, this is where it gets tough. Because Paul's giving up things that the Bible doesn't necessarily say, thou shalt give this up. But yet he does for the sake of ministering more broadly. What we see in verses 19 through 23 is we see that Paul has a consistent practice of accommodating the culture to which he ministered to. Now, before you get uncomfortable, we'll talk about some caveats to this. But look at verse 20. He says, if someone was a Jew or is under the law, I became. What does that mean? I changed my approach. I changed my methods in my practices. If someone was a Jew, I became as a Jew. Now, some of you are with us in our study through the book of Acts. You know this, that there are many times Paul became as a Jew. Um, Acts 16, verses 1 through 3. He brings Timothy, a half-Greek young man, to minister with him on the trail, planting churches. But before he goes into Jewish territory with Timothy, he asks this Greek young man to be circumcised. And then as Paul goes back into Jerusalem into kind of a culture that was in an uproar where people are concerned that Paul is teaching things that go against the grain of Judaism in order for Paul to be more effective ministering to Jewish non-Christians and Christians, what does he do? In Acts 21, verses 23 through 26, he takes on the expenses of what we know as the Nazarite vow. It was a very expensive thing. Yeah, you shaved your head and did all the weird stuff, but at the end of that, you had huge sacrifices that you offered to God. And not only did Paul pay for his own expenses to have a Nazarite vow, he paid for the expenses of several other men to show to these Jews in Jerusalem that he was respectful of even the law of God, the old covenant laws. So what's Paul saying here? He says, when I'm ministering to Jews, I uh, became as a Jew... I respected the laws of God where they didn't contradict with the gospel so that I could gain a better hearing with the Jews. I accommodated my lifestyle to theirs. I didn't expect them to become like me, but in areas that were non-essential, I became like them so that I could gain a better hearing and I could see more former Jews become Christians. I think we'd all agree, he did a pretty good job. I think he did a pretty good job. A lot of churches started with Jewish people in them because the Apostle Paul became as a Jew to minister to Jews. Then he gives kind of another broad category. He talks about those who are outside of the law in verse 21. And he says that when someone was outside of the law, we probably think he's talking about Gentiles, they didn't live by the Old Testament laws. Paul says that he became as someone who is outside of the law. Now he clarifies, says, I'm not outside the laws of Christ and morality, but I set aside my Jewish laws when I was ministering in Gentile territory. And we know this, right? We know that it was Paul, the same Paul who honored Jewish culture. It was also the same Paul who in Acts 15 advocated that Gentiles should not have to obey the Old Testament laws. Same guy. We know it's the same Paul that when he went into towns, he did not insist that these Gentiles went to synagogue. It's the same Paul in Romans 14 that he did not insist that a, that a church filled with Gentiles practice the Jewish holy days. 
When he was ministering to those outside the law, he became as one outside the law. Why? Because he says in Acts 15 that it's not right to put an extra burden of legalism on people, to ask them to do things that Christ is not requiring them to do. What is Paul communicating to us? He's saying this, that he didn't change his morals or his message, but he did change his practices and his methods. This is key, because there's a part of Paul that's unchanging. Gospel doesn't change. The scripture doesn't change. Black and white morals don't change. But there are a lot of areas, if we study Paul's life carefully, that he did accommodate based on who he was ministering to. And what he seems to be giving us the idea here is that the reason that he was changing so often based on where he was is so that he could have the best hearing from the most amount of people. That more people would give him an audience for the gospel. But he also says in verse 22, he's not just talking about evangelism. He says, I became weak when I was ministering to the weak. Now, who are the weak? Do you remember? They're the Christians the group over here that didn't want to eat meat offered idols. In chapter eight, he calls them the weaker brother. Now we know Paul's really pointing fingers at people in the church of Corinth because he's making a case that there's people in their church that need to accommodate themselves to the weaker brother. And he's saying that in my own life and ministry, when I encountered someone who had these certain standards about meat offered to idols, I myself, though I don't think it's wrong to eat meat offered to idols, I adapted my own life so that I could not offend them and be a better minister unto them, right? In these areas that they thought were immoral. I think Paul's example here teaches us two things. Church family, I think Paul's example should spark in us a desire for all of us to minister more broadly. For all of us to minister more broadly. Friends, you can't possibly imagine how many people God wants you to help spiritually. You will never correctly estimate how many people God could use you to influence. Whatever number, whatever amount of people you have in your head is too small. God wants you to minister to more. He wants you not just to minister to more, because I think all of us agree with that. He wants you to minister not just to more people, but different people. Not just to people who are like you, but to people who are different than you. Not just people who have your same skin color, but people who have a different skin color. Not just to people of your same background or same small town people like you. He wants you to minister to people that are actually altogether different than who you were. And I think Paul's a great example of that. Because it blows my mind as I think about it. If there's anybody that I would have picked to be the apostle to the Gentiles, that's what Paul calls himself, I don't think I would have picked Paul. Pharisee of the Pharisees. Hardcore Jewish guy. Killed Christians, observed the law to a T, and this guy is a minister to Gentiles? Friends, what we need to recognize is God wants us all to minister more broadly. There is a lot of people in this community, and if you and I only minister to people whose lives look exactly like ours, whose backgrounds are exactly like ours, whose preferences, political or personal, are exactly like ours, 
we unfortunately are limiting ourselves to a much smaller pool of people than Jesus would want us to minister to. I love as a church, even uh, in the last couple of years, we've seen some diversity in our church. We have people who worshiped with us this morning who do not natively speak English, and yet they find themselves in our services. We've had other people who, not, who did not natively speak another language, and yet they were in our services for several months. I love that we have people who aren't Baptists originally, but here they are, a fellowship Baptist church. Praise God for that. I love that we have people who didn't grow up in Christian homes, who, who didn't grow up going to Sunday school, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. I love that. You know why? Because when we as a church remain flexible in the areas we need to remain flexible to, God's going to use that to allow us to minister to more broad amounts of people. Now, here's the thing. I think all of us want that, right? Who wouldn't want to reach their potential and who God wants you to minister to? The people at your job who are totally different than you, but God wants you to use you to share the gospel with them. All of us want that. But here's what we need to recognize. That broad ministry requires exceptional adaptability. Friends, you cannot get the joy of ministering broadly without it costing you something. There's a reason people sometimes don't minister broadly. It's because at the end of the day, they refuse to give up something in their life to minister to people who are different than them. I mean, imagine how hard it was for Paul. This is really the criticism he was receiving from the people at Corinth. They felt like Paul was a different guy here and a different guy there. And what Paul's trying to explain to them is that the core of who he was, his morals and his message did not change, but his adaptation, his accommodation did change based on where he was. And that's not a bad thing. We even observe in Jesus that the way he preached to one crowd was very different than the way he preached to the other. We saw even a couple weeks ago in our series in Matthew that Jesus told Peter, hey, actually in theory, you don't actually have to pay this temple tax but so as to not offend the Jewish people who would be aware of this, go ahead and pay that tax, right? We see in Jesus the same model that if we're gonna minister broadly, it requires some exceptional adaptability. And adaptability is more than a warm, fuzzy feeling. Adaptability generally requires you and I giving up something we hold dear. Look at verse 19, Paul says it like this. I, though I be free from all men, Yet have I made myself servant unto who? All. Why? Why would he serve everybody? I mean, that sounds like a terrible job. You can't serve everybody. He says, I've served all people so I could gain the more. Look at verse 23. He says it in a similar way. This I do for the gospel's sake. I am flexible so that I can spread the gospel with more and more people. Now, this doesn't mean, church, that as a people, as an individual, as a church, we change what's core. We don't change the message. We don't change the morals. We don't move away from what Scripture teaches. But what Paul is showing us, and this is hard to hear, everything else is fair game. Everything. I love what one church says. I disagree with a lot of things they do, but I think this is a good, 
a good phrase. You might write it down because it would be a good principle for us to embody. Here's a one church, how they phrase this principle. We will do anything short of sin to reach people who don't know Christ. I think that's exceptional adaptability, don't you? We will do anything short of sin. Okay, there's the line. We will do anything short of sin to reach people who don't know Christ. Now I understand, and you all know me, that that type of mindset can justify a myriad of pragmatic ministry philosophies that are more about entertainment than gospel, okay? That's not who we are. That's not who God is, right? But at the end of the day, what Paul shows us is you can have a ministry that's substantive and yet adaptable. You can have a core that does not change, but everything around that core should be fair game. And I think the question begs to be asked, if the right attitude from Paul's words here is we will do anything short of sin to reach Christ. If, if, if that's the case, if it's the case that, that everything else is fair game, we ought to ask ourselves, is it? Is it all fair game? Now, I have no agenda. I have no program I'm pushing here. I'm just saying, I, don't, I can't predict what our church or us as people or you as a person in your workplace will have to be flexible with to reach people for Christ. But is everything else fair game? By some of your looks, I think you're concerned that it's not. And I think the Bible here pushes us to be quite radical in this area. Our music styles, fair game. Our programs, fair game. Is our service schedule fair game? Are our buildings fair game? I'm naming things that in other cultures change. If I were a missionary to Africa, those things would change. And sometimes if you're a missionary to America, those things change. Why? Because they're not the core of who we are. The core of who we are at Fellowship Baptist Church is we are blood-bought believers in Jesus. We preach the gospel. We teach the Bible. That will never change. It should never change. But everything else, Paul says, is fair game. Now, here's, here's where we can really struggle with this because in our mindset, whether it's personal or whether it's church, we can say things like this. This is who I am, and they need to get used to it. I, uh, I don't know if this will scare any of you off, but I... My, my daughter was watching uh, the movie, The Greatest Showman. Great musical, listen. Very clean, too. Um, there's a song in The Greatest Showman. It's, it's such a good song, so well written. It says, this is me. Well, that's a good song, but it's a terrible mentality when it comes to reaching people. Because what Paul shows is that his mentality is not, this is who I am, you figure it out, you get used to me, and then come and hear my message. That's not Paul's attitude. Here's what Paul's attitude was. That's who they are. And so I will change things that are non-essential so I can better minister to them. A lot of us, here's what we say. That's who I am. That's my personality. That's my background. And you just need to get used to it. And if you can't deal with that, then maybe you don't need me in your life at all. Oh, friends, if we take that attitude, we will forever limit who Christ wants us to impact. And here's how I know about the folks in this room. There are some of you, man, if I could just like import you into other people's lives that I know that you don't know or not even in this church, man, I know 
God can use you in such great ways. But if we want to minister broadly, man, it requires some adaptability. It requires some adaptability. It requires some discomfort. But Paul says that it's not just about his ministry. He actually says in verse 23 that there's something in this self-denial thing, ironically, for him. He hints at this in verse 23. Look at verse 23. It says, And this I do for the gospel's sake, that I might be a partaker thereof with you. So Paul says that I, I deny myself for the benefit of those who will hear my message. I set aside my rights, my preferences, my agenda, and I'm flexible in non-essential areas so that I can minister more broadly. But here's what he says, that's not just for your benefit. It's not just for the benefit of the weaker brothers that I deny myself and set aside my rights and my preferences. Here's what he says. I'm exercising self-denial so I can assure myself of my salvation. And friends, what this passage is gonna show us here in a few moments is in verses 24 through 27, that the second reason you and I need to exercise self-denial in our life is to assure ourselves of eternal life. Now, these verses are pretty familiar, I think, if you've been in church for a while. They're beautiful verses. Such rich, sports-filled metaphors. Even if you're not a sports person, it's good stuff. And Paul uses this, these metaphors of how athletes must compete with self-discipline and focus in order to receive a prize. Verse 24 through 25, he talks about a runner, right? Any runners in here? Paul, Robert raised his hand. <laughs> Used to be. All right, hey, praise God. I was too way back. Believe it or not, I ran a 15. I was a biker. I ran, did some big races. Peace, you're a runner. Was a runner, are a runner, right? It takes discipline. Lace up those running shoes at 5 a.m. I, I, I see these runners for the college and the high school around town sometimes, don't you? And I think, I'm happy to be in this car and not running on that sidewalk. That's what I think every time. If you're gonna be a runner and you're gonna win the prize, it is serious self-discipline. There's a lot of things you want that you gotta say no to. A lot of things you wanna eat, you gotta say no to. Sometimes you wanna sleep, you gotta say no to it. But Paul says that, that the runner does that so that at the end of the race, he can stand on that box and receive the victor's wreath. You know, like they did in the Greek Olympic game several years ago, and this is what they did in the, the type of Olympics they had in Corinth, the Isthmian games. They would have these wreaths, these laurels, that they would sit on the head of the winner. I mean, I don't know about you. That ain't worth it to me, but hey, praise God. If you want to go out there and win a flower crown, go for it. But that was a big deal in their culture. Hey, I'm going to go out, I'm going to get a wreath. And they would obviously have a party for these people, have a processional when they came back. And Paul says that if a runner wants to receive that victor's crown, they've got to run with discipline. And then he uses the illustration in verse 26 of a boxer, a boxer. And he says, um, a boxer, essentially what verse 26 is saying, a boxer has to compete with intention and focus. How many of you have ever had, like, boxed ever? Anyone ever boxed? Listen. That is the most exhausting sport ever made by mankind. It is such a work. You want to work out? You want to sweat buckets? Go box for three minutes. That's all you need. Because it is an exhausting, 
exhausting sport. And what Paul's saying in verse 26, is says when you're boxing, you cannot afford to waste a single punch because it takes energy to throw a punch. And he says, I can't throw a punch and just hit the air. That if a boxer wants to win, every single punch in their mind has to land. Because if you throw too many punches and just hit the air, you'll run out of steam and you'll get knocked out. And he says that what an athlete does is they compete with self-discipline and focus, with intentionality and purpose. And all of that is so that they can receive the prize. Now we have to ask, if we're gonna properly understand these verses, what is that prize? What is the prize Paul is talking about? Because sometimes when we read these verses, we think it's, a, it's like an extra prize we get when we go to heaven. I've heard it called the victor's crown. I don't know what that's about, but it's an extra prize. On top of salvation, you get rewarded extra for being an extra good Christian. But I think what will help us understand this prize, so we just carefully look at these verses and do a little bit of a word study here. Clearly, verse 25 says, this prize is incorruptible, which means it's eternal. So what is the prize? Well, we know it's eternal. Verse 24, Paul tells the whole church, run that you can obtain this prize. That means this prize is available to everybody, not just people like Paul who are in ministry. Verse number 27 gives us the best clue of what this prize is because he says in verse 27 that those who don't receive the prize, Paul was concerned that if he didn't exercise self-discipline, he would be, what's the word of verse 27? A castaway. A castaway. Now, that's not quoting the famous movie with Tom Hanks, okay? What that is, that is the, the word adakamos. You might be more familiar with how this word is translated in Romans 128, where Paul says there that some gave themselves up to a reprobate mind. Same word. Look at 2 Corinthians 13.5. It's the same word. He says, examine yourselves, whether ye be in the faith. Prove your own selves. Know ye not your own selves, how that Jesus Christ is in you, except ye be reprobates? Or we could translate it like Paul did here, castaways. What Paul seems to give us the indicator of is that the prize in verses 24 through 27 is eternal life itself. And Paul's concern, even for himself, look at verse 27. I keep under my body. I bring it into subjection, lest that by any means when I have preached to others, I myself should be a reprobate. Maybe Paul has in mind here people in the church who would have preached a sharp message, a message of wisdom, but they themselves were undisciplined people who didn't deny themselves who were reprobates in the faith. Now, Paul is not teaching that we do good deeds to gain our salvation. Can we agree about that? That's not what the Bible teaches, okay? What Paul is saying is that his life of self-denial was a means of God assuring him of his salvation. Here's what you'll never see in scripture. Pastor Paul, how do I know I'm saved? Well, tell me about the prayer you prayed. You're never gonna see that in scripture. What we see in scripture is yes, God promises 
to preserve those who are his people. Philippians 1, 6. We know that salvation is eternal life, not temporary life, right? Salvation itself cannot be lost. But the real question of the Bible is, who, how do we know if we have that gift? How do we know if someone else has that gift? Because at the end of the day, it's not like God wrote us a letter to confirm our receipt of his salvation and dropped it in our mailbox. It's intangible. And what the Bible seems to teach is that though we can't see our heart, we don't have x-ray vision to see into someone's heart and see if they've received the true biblical gospel. What we do have is outward fruits of that inward repentance. And one of those outward fruits, what Paul I think is indicating is an essential outward fruit of repentance is self-denial. Listen to Matthew 16, 24 through 25. Jesus said to his disciples, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. And whoever will lose his life for my sake will surely find it. Here's what I know. After dealing with people, dealing with myself, even my wife in years past, who have this question, and it can be a soul-wrenching, keep-you-up-at-night question, how do I know if I'm saved? A lot of times we turn to different avenues to try and assure ourselves. We, we ask ourselves questions like this. Did I really repent? Like really, really, really repent? When I prayed for salvation, did I believe enough? How do I know if I believed enough? Was my change in my life dramatic enough? Now what this passage teaches doesn't have to scare you. It could be a means of great assurance because Paul simplifies it. Yes, we must examine whether we believed a biblical gospel, but we simply, if we want assurance of our salvation, here's what we need to ask ourselves. Is there evidence of the Spirit producing self-denial in my life? When we evaluate someone else's conversion, if we're concerned about them, or if we are receiving them into church membership, which ultimately is the church affirming someone's conversion. We don't just ask, or I don't just ask about a prayer or an experience. I'm looking as I get to know them for evidence of the Holy Spirit in their life. And I know for some of you, if you're like me, I don't remember, I don't know the day I got saved. It's not written in any Bible I've got. I don't remember that. And you know what? I don't worry about it. Because I may not remember the day, I can remember the moments, but here's what I can do and maybe what a lot of you can do and find great assurance in. I can look back on my life and I can say, I know the spirit was telling me to say no to myself then and then and then and then. And so this fruit of self-denial, Paul says, in his own life even, was something that gave him great comfort in the assurance of his salvation, lest he himself, after preaching to others, should be a castaway. What a tragic, tragic end that would be for apostle to be a reprobate. As a pastor, honestly, I fear that there are church members who may not have that fruit in their life who do not deny themselves, who live for the flesh, who are governed not by the spirit, but by their own desires, 
And Paul says, if you look at a trajectory of someone's life, that should give you great concern if there is not the fruit of self-denial. But praise God, if there is, hey, you may not remember the day, you may not remember the time, you may not remember a lot of details about your salvation, but if you can look back and see the fruit of the Spirit in your life, what is the fruit of the Spirit? It's evidence that the tree is there, that the roots are there, and it can serve to be of great, great comfort to us. What is Paul teaching us tonight? Here's the main idea. The self-denial is not a loss, but a gain. When we deny ourselves, we gain a bigger audience to make an impact on. And praise God for that. And when we deny ourselves, we gain assurance of our salvation as we see the spirit working in us to say no to our flesh and yes to God's word. Self-denial is not a loss. Oh, there's a cost, but it's not a loss. It indeed is a gain because when we deny self, we can win others and win the prize of assurance of our salvation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word tonight. We pray you to bless it. Help us this week to have a desire to minister to more people. God, there's so many lost people. We need every Christian possible to want to minister to as many people as possible. Lord, I, I look on faces in this room and think, boy, how you want to and you are even using some in this room to help other Christians uh, to live out the light of the gospel and we just want to multiply. We want to increase our light. We want to turn up the brightness by 50% this week. And so I pray you'd help us to know what we can do to be a better minister to others. And God, I pray that you would continue because it's only to your glory and your credit that you would continue to produce the fruit of the spirit in our lives, the fruit of self-denial. God, that is not something we muster up in our own strength. That is something you from heaven give us. And so I pray that you continue to show that in our lives and thus assure us of our salvation. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, just